This is 50 Feminist States, a road-tripping storytelling podcast visiting all 50 U.S. states to interview feminist activists and artists about their work for gender justice. I'm Amelia Freeby, and this week, we're in Pennsylvania. From the glaciers of Alaska to the dunes of Indiana, I want 50 feminist states. From the waves of New Hampshire to the skies of Montana, I want 50 It's Amelia, and I am so excited to be back for season two of the 50 Feminist Dates podcast. Woo! <laughs> also, happy Valentine's Day. I'm mostly over here gushing about this new theme song that we have. If you haven't heard it already, go back and listen to the season two preview, or just rewind to the beginning of this episode, and you'll get to hear a little bit of it. It was written by my friend Danielle Sines of Chicago band Impulsive Hearts, and it features Jessica Neria from the band Paper Constellations also Chicago-based. It is a dream, really, to have a 50 Feminist States theme song written and performed by two amazing women from the city that I love and live in. So all of my love goes out to them. Thank you so much. That said, we are kicking things off in Pennsylvania with an interview with two dear friends of mine who are also both fantastic artists and inspiring activists. This interview is all about trans and queer identity and Native and Indigenous identity. Let's hear a little bit more of that amazing new theme song we've got, and then we'll dive right in. De los arcos de Utah, cavernas de Nuevo México, 50 estados feministas. De las playas de California, los pozos de agua de Texas, 50 estados feministas. When I think of Pennsylvania, the first thing that comes to mind is the Liberty Bell. And I think that for a lot of folks, Philadelphia is what comes to mind when they think about Pennsylvania. And that makes sense. The city has a glorified past in U.S. history, and it's home to the Philly cheesesteak, arguably the most American of sandwiches. Pennsylvania is the fifth largest state in the U.S., but only about 1.6 of its 12.8 million residents live in Philadelphia. So for this episode, I thought I'd focus on a different area of the state that perhaps doesn't get quite as much attention as Philly, even though it's right in the center of the state. Center County, to be exact. The first place I went in Center County was Belfont, Pennsylvania. Belfont has been around for almost 250 years. In fact, its Chamber of Commerce website begins its town history with, and I'm quoting, Belfont's Big Spring was first seen by white men on July 1769. That's almost exactly 250 years ago now. Although, of course, the area was home to Shawnee, Ohio Valley, and Iroquois Confederacy tribe members thousands of years before then. Now, Belfont has a population of just over 6,000 people and an area of only 1.8 square miles. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, it is 96.5% white, with only 0.3% of its population, or in a town of this size, about 18 people, identifying as Native American or Alaska Native. This isn't so demographically surprising if you consider that Native American and Indigenous people make up only 0.35% of Pennsylvania's population, ranking it 47th in the nation for Indigenous representation in relation to overall population. And this isn't so historically surprising if you consider that less than two hours from Belfont is Carlisle, Pennsylvania, 
which was home to the Carlisle Indian Industrial School, a place where more than 10,000 Native American children from 140 tribes were taken and violently assimilated into white U.S. culture between 1879 and 1918. But if you've ever heard of Center County before, it's likely because you've heard of the town 12 miles over from Belfont, State College, Pennsylvania, home to Penn State University. If you count all of the students and grad students at Penn State in State College's population, then the city is the third largest in Pennsylvania, trailing only behind Philadelphia and Pittsburgh. But State College is significantly less diverse and more remote than those cities, a fact that's very apparent as soon as you try to go there, and which led a previous Penn State University president to refer to the school as, I quote, equally inaccessible from all parts of the state. None of this made Center County a particularly appealing place to move for the two artist activists I interviewed for this episode, but they found themselves there for reasons you'll hear about soon. One thing I think is important to underscore as we start season two of this podcast is that many of the people that I've interviewed were born and raised and lived and do their activist work in the place that they are from. But we don't all stay in the same place that we're from. And sometimes we find ourselves living in places where we don't necessarily want to be or feel we belong. Those places are important spaces for feminist work too. And people who move somewhere new can have as much insight into a place as folks who've lived there and called it home their entire lives. It's just a matter of a different, careful perspective. Now let's head right into the middle of things and hear from Brooklyn, a PhD student and poet at Penn State, and Sada, an artist and activist working at a center for survivors of sexual, domestic, and relationship violence in Belfont, about their perspectives on and experiences of queer identity in rural Pennsylvania. I'm Sada. I'm originally from the Detroit area, actually Pontiac, Michigan. Um, right now, I'm in Belfont, Pennsylvania, working as a client advocate at the Center County Women's Resource Center, which is now Center Safe. And um, I'm Brooklyn. I'm a graduate student in the philosophy department at Penn State University, originally from Chicago, and right now I'm in between Belfont and State College. And Sada's my partner. So I see queerness as like a world I've always inhabited, but that was hidden from me. And I feel like there was times in my childhood where I most noticed my queerness and transness because there was like disruptions in like the linearity of my world world and like its coherence like things didn't make sense where like and I remember being at a bowling alley with all of my little cousins I think I was like 10 or 12 around that age and there was a trans woman working in the arcade section in the bar and my cousins um, would like run up and back and forth to like peer at her and like call her a he she and like make fun of her and I remember like walking along with them as like they would like go back and forth to just like stare at her and uh, make jokes and like bring my other cousins to come look at her and being like oh my god like we found a like insert like transler and I remember after they left to go back by our family I like snuck back into the arcade into this photo booth and I like closed the curtains and I would look outside at her and I would close the curtains again and I would look at myself in in the screen and I just remember I started crying because I felt like I looked like her and I didn't understand like why and I felt like this moment of like seeing myself in the future and being scared of I was like a he she and I didn't know how to like deal with that moment and it was really strange like re-remembering it for the first time a couple days ago but yeah so I just find that this idea this kind of like linear narrative of like coming out as queer is just like I've been queer my entire life and also trans my entire life 
Yeah, I think sort of finding chosen family as well as coming into my queerness sort of started back in in college and doing community organizing work and, and being a student activist because you ultimately, like, we're all queer in one way or another. But I think that being able to sort of, like, radicalize and re-indigenize the ways that I not only did community activism and, and organizing work at a university level and then when I got involved, like, at a city level, just being able to to read like amazing works of like literature and theory and poems by trans authors and queer authors and things like that at a university level and then being able to go outside the walls of of like the academy and be with like this chosen family community organizing and like in a way that really like both of those two worlds never sort of blended together or were never meant to to exist to uphold each other like community organizing and the academy of course like they're never meant to like be uplifted at the same time but I think that it blended in a way that also blended me finding um my chosen family and me finding my queerness and then I think that through that I was able to sort of do a lot of like introspective work to figure out who I wanted to be and and for me that meant like who I wanted to love like how I wanted to treat my body and then like that just sort of evolved into my mindset and and sort of decolonizing my mind quite literally and not thinking of queerness as this this one thing like being you have to you know dress this way to be queer or do a certain thing to to actually quote-unquote be queer in real life and I think for me it's it had also been a struggle because like I identify as as now as a as a two-spirit Mexica woman and I think that figuring out that I could be two-spirit and you know you could insert any other type of sort of decolonial way to say like six gender or or trans um but also being really close with like my womanness and whatever that means to me um because femininity works in like a spiritual way not like a physical manifestation sort of in, in the works that I've been able to read um, with indigenous theory. One of the things that I love about what both Brooklyn and Sada said about queerness is the way they talk about queer identity as ever present and ever evolving, both something you can feel from a young age, but also come into through a process of unlearning, unsettling, or as Sada put it, decolonizing. I wanted to learn more from Sada about being two-spirit. So here's her explaining that term. I think to me, being two-spirit means that I have both feminine and masculine energies, not like in dress or in mannerisms and things like that, rather energies. And and I really specifically mean like spiritual energies and how those are always existing in me at the same time, or maybe one thing is more present than the other. It's still something that I'm working towards. Like it's never just I'm two spirit and that's it. It's still always a journey of learning and unlearning really harmful ways of of heteronormativity and just the ways those things present themselves in the lives of like young native and indigenous youth as well as in communities of elders who have also been sort of forced to assimilate into western categories of gender and how those manifest themselves and I think that the queer community could also learn a lot about two-spiritness and decolonizing the ways that we think about gender as, as just categories but rather energies and things that can fluctuate and and change and shift um which is essentially you know fucking up the gender system which is the point of all of this i think 
So I think that for those very reasons, when white folks and when non-Native and Indigenous folks adopt the term two-spirit as an identifier for them, it's not only historically unjust, but it's violent because in no way did their did them or their ancestors experience that same amount of targeted violence. And if so, I'm sure that they could adopt a terminology that's like it, but in their own ancestral language and heritage. White people have ancestors too, and so they have an equal sort of obligation to to finding their ancestry and, and sort of their spiritual selves without having to adopt and steal the practices of Native and Indigenous folks. I want to pause and point to two things Zada said that really struck me here. The first is how race and gender are deeply intertwined. As Sarah points out, being two-spirit can't be removed from being indigenous. These identities evolve together and remain that way. The second thing that stood out to me is her call for white people to do their own ancestral work and recover their own ancestral practices. For white people, this also means facing a very, very long history of colonizing, of violence, of being the oppressor. But unsettling that settler colonial history is a part of the ancestral work of white folks. And I think Sada's reminder is really important to hear. I know it was important for me to hear. Now let's hear Brooklyn reflect on their experiences of racial and ethnic identity and more about the differences between being Native and being Indigenous. So I remember growing up being little and when, whenever anyone would ask me, like, what are you? I would say Native and Jewish. And I also got, like, the question, what are you a lot, just from being racially ambiguous. But I remember in junior high, because of, like, the reactions that I've that have accumulated of being like, well, you don't look indigenous. Um, and this idea that indigenous peoples all kind of like look a certain way and act a certain way that like I began to hide those parts of myself. And I think I think I learned that from my grandmother, who at the time faced a lot of discrimination for being a native woman in Skytook, o- Oklahoma. I think her methods of resistance, of protecting and hiding those histories and those knowledges kind of like replicated itself in like, me and my siblings, where we, like, knew intimate connections between, like, what it felt like to be in a Native space, what Native things, how just, like, how they felt, and knowing that it felt familiar, knowing that, like, we knew what they were, but not being able to necessarily articulate what that was, and, like, growing up with stories of, like, how, like, my grandmother's grandmother was born, like, on the Trail of Tears behind a knocked-over wagon during, like, a raid on particularly, like, the tribe that was like making their journey near the Trail of Tears and just like pictures and stories Um, but being so far removed from like my grandmother's family in Oklahoma just like really diluted my connection towards nativeness. One of my biggest teachers has been Sara um, and like learning that like being native I think tasks me with like the obligation and duty to like learn about my history and like my practices um, and like my particular practices too like not just sadas my traditional ceremonies and dress and food and yeah I think it's interesting how different Brooklyn and I's experiences are especially also Brooklyn as a native person and and myself as an indigenous person and the ways that those two things are sort of different and the same but I got I went to my first ceremony, I think I was 16, um, a family friend was a part of 
sort of this this women's group, which is now my Kapuli, um, she sort of invited me into it because she, I mean, she watched me grow up. She's known me for a long time. Her name's Sandra. And she invited me to ceremony and I took it as a huge honor. And I went with an open mind, really not knowing what to expect. It was sort of an awakening that I, I can't necessarily describe to anybody. I, I haven't really been able to describe it to myself. I've tried to write about it for a really long time. But and also just the fact that like ceremony is a, is a sacred thing. And I understand that in in participating in ceremony and in being in ceremony, there are things that don't leave it and things that stay there and stay hidden and sacred for for a good reason, considering how many of our people have lost huge portions of their histories and their cultures and the ways of living because of the ways that we've been had we've had to to hide it and so I guess for me the differences between sort of nativeness and indigeneity for Brooklyn and I are sort of our physical locations geographically and so Brooklyn as a Native American you know Cherokee person from Turtle Island and then myself positioning myself and what is now, you know, known as as Mexico, but really sort of occupied Mesoamerica, but Sipactli, like the tail of Sipactli, which is Sipactli is um like an alligator crocodile in, in Nahuatl. And so I think the difference is the locations we come from, but my my ceremonial grandmother would actually say otherwise. She um told me that I was native and she had to sort of like awaken me to to realize that I was in the sense that I was practicing on native land. Um, my, my kapuli is based in Flint, Michigan, and that's, you know, Three Fires Nation, Ojibwa, Odawa, and Potawatomi land. It's not Mexica land, but it's also this idea that Mexica and, and majority of native and indigenous peoples migrated. You know, we never stayed in the same place. Migration isn't just you know, new in the 90s. Um, it's always happened and we've always shared our our ceremonies and our foods and our, our, our homes with other clans and tribes. And for that very reason, we see so many similarities and crossovers between um, Native and Indigenous communities and what we now call Mexico and then all the way up to to Flint, Michigan. You know, we sh- we all share the same fire, the same four directions um our colors might be different but they all have sort of same spiritual and cultural meanings and significance for for all of us and and it's not just a coincidence um it's because we migrated and we shared our stories and so i think i guess like long story short like we we are native depending on where we are and we're indigenous depending on where we are and i think you know right now i'm indigenous but if if you ask me you know if i'm in mexico or if you ask me if i'm when I'm in ceremony with my with my community, um, I might say I'm native. I think that there's a lot to say about that. I, I kind of want to know what you think about it. I guess like for me, like geography has a lot to do with it, location, but also just we have very similar but vastly different colonial histories. There was lots of conversations between many colonists and particularly French and British colonists who were colonizing the east coast of turtle island and there was lots of debates back and forth as to whether or not you can like save the man kill the indian kind of thing so like there's a lot of interesting ways in which like both mine and sada's colonizers were like in direct conversation with each other while they were colonizing um our ancestors so 
there's like differences in history and differences in tactics of colonialism which is why i think like the kinds of ways in which like their focus on Cherokee people were to assimilate them were to like kill culture mix Indian children from different tribes into like one school so they couldn't know their language cut their hair change their clothes helped to like develop what we now understand as like a pan-Indian identity and my grandma also experienced this growing up in Skytook, Oklahoma where she her experiences of like her knowledge of like ceremonies come from a lot of different um tribes um but this is why I think we see that like Mexica peoples tend to be more welcoming of like two-spiritness and queerness whereas like especially like also a lot of my family they're very conservative a lot of them converted to Christianity so I think that native and indigenous holds different kinds of histories if I could add something it's also really interesting how I mean now in this century I guess like with native and indigenous youth our nations or our our ancestry is also politicized Mm -hmm. so like Mexica in particular is is a very political indigenous identity and you'll get a different answer depending on who you're talking to whether it's someone from the west coast or someone from the east coast but i think being in the midwest sort of centralizes like a little bit of an like of an internal struggle because we're not growing up or living in our ancestral lands and i think that that's a whole other struggle with a lot of native youth or or city indians you know we're not growing up on our territories or or our rightful lands and so we're learning we're learning and adopting new you know new ways of making medicines and doing ceremony and engaging in in all of those um you know in all of our ancestral traditions but we're doing them with different different teachings and and people from other clans and and nations and so you know to what extent is is it doing an injustice to your ancestry or your heritage but also to what extent is that survival because survival and resistance actually because you know this idea of of decolonization is is you know i guess fairly new um and it's it's a little bit mainstream in a way because so many people are talking about decolonization without actually talking about re-indigenization and i think that that's the problem here it's that we're not including indigenous peoples in and what we're reflecting on as decolonial and so how are you about to do that if you don't know you know the history of the plants on the land you're on you know if you don't know how to smudge your community and how to protect them and how to heal them and how to send them off to battle and and all of these things and so there cannot be decolonization without reindigenization. And so that requires, you know, a huge history lesson for all of us, as well as a huge sort of coming together and and separating our differences, especially if you're talking about, you know, community organizing and, and the revolution happening literally at our front door. This discussion of place and land led us back to a conversation about Pennsylvania, the state where Brooklyn and Sada have found themselves in the past year. Hear Brooklyn talk about their experience living in State College. So first off, I kind of like have one foot in State College, one foot in Belfont because of school and then because of Sara. And the differences are just astounding. Um, I walk down the street in in State College, this one like really long street downtown. And like the glares that I get from people, the kinds of like moments of like disgust and small comments or snickers begins to like weigh a lot on like my body and myself. For example, now that Sada is here, I've learned like 
Baofan is almost kind of like my my safe haven. And so I was walking down the street the other day, which is something that I usually don't do because I like take Ubers to avoid like um, having to do that or like it even changed the way I dress. I stopped wearing um, button ups and tried to look a little bit more androgynous. And so balancing like dysphoria and then the kinds of like dysphoria that's triggered from like other people is really hard. And then also like trying to perform gender for my philosophy department where it feels as if I have to kind of earn my pronouns not that people get it right anyways but if I'm dressed feminine that day I'll get comments like why are you dressing like a girl so things like that trying to navigate being read as legible and being respected is really really hard so there's just like that kind of context around living um, between these two places but the drive there and the drive back every single day has become like a little ritual for me of just like relaxing and breathing and like taking in the fresh air around me in the mountains and I think a lot about how particularly like this Iroquois land overlaps with like my ancestral Cherokee lands up much further in the Appalachian Mountains. How waking up to the mountains every single day makes me wonder what it was like for my ancestors to see mountains all around the mountains that are way bigger being here i'm trying to unlearn all of like my kind of unhealthy relationships with nature and particularly this idea of like feeling isolated um and how like the need to be in a big city and and see other people but realizing that there's potentially like less life in cities that i'm surrounded here by just like so much life so many different kinds of beings and like i eat plants and trees that if i listened hard enough like maybe i would hear in like a completely different way and trying to like really train like my ear to hear what the land needs and what it wants from me sada also shared her experiences in pennsylvania and her relationship to the land and people there like as somebody who who is always needed to ground ceremonies and to protect people. I think part of the reason why I'm here is not only out of like my love for Brooklyn, but out of wanting to protect and heal. And like on my own journey of of being a healer and, and figuring out what that means and making sure that that's never taken advantage of um, because it is often um, the labor of all healers and, and herbalists and indigenous women and women um, and non-binary and trans and two-spirit folks, you know, we're always taken advantage of. And and so I guess me being here is is no different. I mean, in the work that I do, I'm, I'm there to heal and work alongside and protect, um, you know, the folks that come in to, to shelter and the folks that that I work with and and go to court appearances with and things like that. And so I think that's something that gets me through every day being, you know, quite literally in in the middle of nowhere. I think something that also keeps me here is is the mountains and the plants that um that grow at different times of the year that I'm used to here and the land that gets to to thrive around me all the time. You know, we're Brooklyn and I are both coming off of 4 to 5 years of of being stuck in a city and and seeing concrete and you know loving a tree if it's you know planted there strategically by the city and so being here is a challenge every single day like I will never lie to myself about that but I've I haven't yet come to regret coming here and I think that that's because of the work that I get to do but it's also because of the ways that my body feels and my spirit feels around all the nature 
and I do like Brooklyn and I always visualize you know like what if you erased that building what if these streets were were just fields of grass and like what if the golden rod just like expanded over that like waffle shop next door and so we think about those things all the time and I think that that's that allows us to sort of create these you know future imaginaries of of what what was but what could be and and if it's not something that could be possible then really trying to to keep keep those possibilities alive in in our writing and in our work and and the people that we get to talk to and and just sort of letting people know like hey you're on occupied native land and that really goes far and it's really interesting to see the ways that you know the farming community the rural community here work and tend to the land um, and really appreciate the land in ways that you know city folks don't necessarily do and so it's a whole type of it's a whole different type of of colonialism it's a whole different type of racism and transphobia and I'm still trying to learn and figure out if part of that is just not knowing and always being curious or if it's just you know knowing and and hating and you know you never really know when that's going to happen you never know who's who you're going to smile at on the street and and if they're thinking you know like that person shouldn't shouldn't exist or if they're thinking like what is that person and I think those are two different questions that they ask themselves and that's something I will never know but you know I I, we have some answers so if people just asked us questions it'd be a whole different story Being unafraid to embed yourself in a community and really be with the people there is one of the many things that I've learned from Brooklyn and Sada. They have also both so graciously answered so many of my questions about queer identity and family and experience time and time again, and I'm truly grateful to them for that. To close this episode, I asked them both to share something they'd written, because they're beautiful poets as well as activists. Here's an untitled poem by Sada, then one from Brooklyn. Honeybee sipping on ice lemongrass. Dew nestled on their wings, ripples to hot summer breezes. Knees bent in dirt, patched with lace from abuelas' curtains, strings run and run, through that empty clay cricket house. Cold walls keep the heat in the kitchen. The smoke eases our tender limbs from making mud pies and building sandcastles on the walls with hot crayons. Melting like thick cream off the top of mamá's famous pastel de tres leches. Summer crickets playing trombone in the dark. The hamaca creaking as stories by the fire roar. Little limbs finally rest, asleep on the cold earth, dirt whispering memories of beautiful goodness, dripping like honey on leaves. Okay, so this poem is entitled Unhomeliness. In the pavement, the train, the lamppost, we find love, the same way we move but we wish for a home. We crawl back to the hips that birthed us but find scorched earth, trace our origins to map creases that cannot be unfolded, show our crinkled palms to the moon, ask God, what color are we? And we wait never to hear, only to leave, blending, dragging, listening to whispers from shadows to tell us who we are, why we are, and yet we find love still moving in us and others, even with no homes, only places in the long walk back to where we do not know. That's all for this week, fellow travelers and podcast listeners. Happy Valentine's Day, if that's your thing. And thanks so much for tuning back in to the 50 Feminist States podcast at the start of season two. Next week, we're off to New York. Until then, I'll see you on the road. Thank you.
this episode of 50 Feminist Dates. You can find show notes at 50feministdates.com slash podcast and follow us on Instagram at 50feministdates. Special thanks to Danielle Sines and Jessica Neria for our theme song. Until next time, wild ones, we'll see you on the road.